0: Hey, podcast listeners, this is Charles Chandler. This week, we're at episode number 76, and it's going to be called The Boomerang Principle. This is actually an encore presentation of an episode that aired first back in March of this year. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Well, this week we're up to episode number 58. I'm calling it Creating Lifetime Employee Loyalty. And I'm welcoming back a previous guest that we had on the program back in June of 2016. I'm joined now by Lee Karaher, who's the CEO of Double Forte. Uh, which is a public relations and marketing services firm with offices in San Francisco, New York, and Boston. Welcome, Lee.
1: Thank you, Charles. It's so nice to be back with you.
0: Yeah, you were on the podcast back in June 2016, and we talked about The Millennial Mindset, your first book. Uh, Now you've got a new book coming out April 11th, uh, The Boomerang Principle. Uh, Tell tell me a little bit about it.
1: The Boomerang Principle is... Um, Those organizations that allow and even encourage their former employees to return have a strategic advantage over those that don't. And I talk about this different sort of mindset um, from particularly for older bosses to um, being able to create a very positive, uh, engaging culture. Um, And then how we can think about employee loyalty, not just um, during the time we pay people with a paycheck, but over their entire career so that we can have a more a more strategic and beneficial relationship with our employees that has a benefit to the bottom line for a very long time.
0: Yeah. So it's all about, um, you know, I guess keeping the, you know, the positive mindset about employees whether they leave or not um, mm-hmm. a lot of companies um, seem to say that well okay if an employee leaves we're not going to let them back they've sort of abandoned mm-hmm. us they've they've uh, yes
1: they're dead to me
0: they're yeah they've they're dead and uh, we don't want them anymore so uh, they're gone very what, short-sighted yeah it is it is what what inspired you to write about this particular principle
1: well a couple things one is I um, before I started my own company in 2002, I managed a very large uh, operation for another public relations and marketing firm where it was like a revolving door of people saying they had um, other job offers and would I counter them for the, so they could stay. And it was exhausting. And I realized I was putting all my effort into people who would, were trying to leave. You're going to to hold us hostage. And one day I decided I'm not doing that anymore. It was an epiphany done. And we're going to put all our effort and all our resources into the people who are staying with us and not trying to jockey around us. Um, And I didn't even get to tell anybody in my office that I had made this decision. And before someone walked into my office and said, I have an offer at this other company. And they were waiting for me to counter. He was waiting for me to counter him. And I said, good luck. (laughs) And he was (laughs) flabbergasted that I wasn't going to counter. And he said, aren't you going to counter me? I said, no, I'm not countering you. I know this firm you're going to They do great work and here's my advice on how to succeed there and I gave him three or four pointers and he was still so now he was angry that I wasn't going to counter and he said well you countered Joe last week and I said yeah I'm done with that I'm done with that but you know in the future when you don't like working there anymore let me know maybe there's a place back here I hope you can come back here and yeah. I had never said before and um I can tell you when that sort of flew around my office (laughs) before I could even tell anybody. um, The relief people had was just so palpable. We started putting much more effort into our culture, took all that money we were um, saving to up people's salaries as they were exiting, put it into our business, into our people, into into the environment, and people stopped leaving. So voila, right?
0: (laughs) It changed the mindset. (laughs)
1: Totally changed the environment and then changed the mindset of my the managers, changed the mindset of my team, changed everybody's mindset. Then um, 9-11 happened and we really didn't have time to actually bring anybody back by the time that. When I started my own company, um, we decided uh, I had the same mindset, uh, was never counter anybody. And I in fact, when people come into the company, we say... We know you're not going to stay here forever. We want it to be a very important part of your resume that you will be proud of any time you spend with us. And we are dedicated to making sure that you can get where you want to go in your career, even if it's not with us. You, you know, in the context of our business, here's what we hope you do. We would like to hear what you want to do. And the result is when people leave, because we what we, we offer isn't what they want to do anymore. Or they want to do something that we don't offer. Um, one, it's very congenial, and two, I always say you can come back. And in 15 years, we have brought back over a dozen people. And we're a small company. We have 35 people in my company, but over today, but over the over 15 years, we brought over a dozen back as employees. And um, we have very positive relationships with about probably 90% of our former employees. And some of them have become clients, some, um, but virtually all of them are advocates for us in the business marketplace. And that's where you want to be. You want to be in a place where you have former employees who are out there being your advocates. And it starts with having a mindset of, you can come back to me.
0: Yeah, that's great. How would you actually state the boomerang principle? What is the one sentence that comes to mind there?
1: The boomerang principle is those companies that and organizations that allow and encourage former employees to return have a strategic advantage over those that don't.
0: So, when did you create this uh, idea?
1: Um, about ten years ago, when um, about ten years ago, two thousand and seven, we started talking about it this way. And I really didn't understand that it didn't exist in the world out there. I mean, the boomerang boomeranging as a verb or a gerund, I guess, um, has become more popular in the last four or five years and could find articles on it. But there is no there has been no body of work on it, meaning there's there's really no other book on the topic. And the fact that I could actually get the URL tells you that there wasn't a lot of conversation about it. And I decided to write the book after I was talking about, in the course of talking about my first book, which is Millennials and Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work. I encountered so many people in my workshops and keynote speeches who were, had what you, you know, had this attitude of like, if they, why would I put any effort into people who are going to leave me? If they leave me, they're dead to me. And frankly, if, your employees if that's how you think about your employees at at that that they're dead to you you are working too hard to find new ones because that that reputation you have is hurting you in the marketplace for talent
0: yeah i think what you're saying is um you know it's all about social capital in a way you put a lot of effort into developing a good environment with employees and and getting them on board and when they leave especially if it's a, if they leave with a bad uh, situation there you destroy that social capital,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you, you can't really get it back. I think what you're talking about now is a kind of a strategic idea that um, let's build social capital and then put it out there, and the, even if they go elsewhere, it'll still mm-hmm. kind of come back to us as a boomerang. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It should. And particularly if we think about millennials and uh, probably Gen Z who's coming up behind them, and millennials have been conditioned – their parents, by the economy, by the education, not to stay in jobs forever and ever. You know, when I was coming into the workplace, you know, it was not atypical for people to stay in the same company for a long time. Uh, I was sort of different um, in that I moved around quite a bit uh, before I started my own company. But, you know, I encounter people my age who have been at companies 10, 15 years before they got uh, laid off in 2008, 2009, right? (laughs) Uh, so millennials know not to stay in a job too long because they don't want to look stale. Because they've seen their parents not be able to find work between two thousand after two thousand eight because they were long in the tooth, so to speak. Uh, that doesn't mean, however, that you can't um, that people shouldn't imagine weaving in and out of your company over time, when they have different skill sets to come back at a different time when the time is right. And in a recent survey over in my own research which was over 3,500 people um, surveyed over 60% of the people I surveyed said they would be willing, you know, they they'd obviously think about coming back to um, work only 40% of the company said they were willing to have people return to work. And this mismatch, particularly um, this was all skilled talent in an era where um, skilled talent is going to be harder and harder to get given what's happening in the economy and happening with generations and people retiring, this is going to be the strategic advantage you can have. It's a talent war, and that's not going to go away anytime soon.
0: Yeah. So do you see a new employer-employee paradigm, loyalty paradigm? Uh, I do. What what is the new paradigm here?
1: I think that the paradigm is um, instead of employee loyalty, meaning you're loyal to me while I pay you, the employee, what we want is employees who are loyal to the organizations they work at or work with for their entire lives. And how you um, keep those people close to you, even when you're not paying them, is the key, right? Yeah. So if you think about it as um, the correlation actually to uh, an alumni club of a, of a college has a lot in common with what I'm advocating for here, is that how do you keep people attached to you? Well, you create those relations. One, you, you you maintain the relationship you had with them when they you were paying them um, with some different components once they have left you. And I find all the time that people don't know where their former employees are. They don't know where they're working. They don't know how to get hold of them. Um, we've all got their email when they came to us. Uh, the fact that we can't figure out where they are today is sort of mind boggling. And those companies who have created very robust alumni programs and there are several today that have done that and now they're emerging plat, uh, software platforms that allow you to do that much easier these are companies that are just at the top of their game um, and are able to shorten the recruiting cycle shorten the sales cycle and shorten the marketing cycle because they have such an army of people out there who are willing to go that extra mile and say something good about their former employer
0: so if you're recruiting an alumni club uh, mm-hmm. It should be fairly easy to keep up with them on LinkedIn, I would think uh, these days, at least.
1: Yeah, well, I think LinkedIn is an open club, and I would not uh, advocate for creating your alumni club on LinkedIn. You can find people on LinkedIn because they put their, you know, everyone's put their fine, former, you know, former jobs there. But the most sophisticated programs are closed environments that are proprietary. So, for instance, McKinsey. The management consulting firm has its own platform for this. And then there are other companies have created some stuff. SAP has a module for this and some other companies have done that. But if you, at the very least, be able to um, move everybody into a private Facebook group, which virtually everybody has Facebook, even if they're not active on it, they could be active in a private way that other people would not see. This allows you to have you to manage the group and not for, you know, a a rogue employee to manage the group. Most, I've took a look at a lot of the um, alumni, quote-unquote alumni clubs on LinkedIn, and most of those are run and administered by people who are no longer at the company. And there's, you know, the congeniality among people is good, but sometimes the the feeling about the organization that they all came from is not as positive. If you have a private environment... Then you can share all different kinds of things. You can do webinars. You can give them special discounts. You can um, highlight them. You can do, create, um, you know, blogs around where is our alumni and highlight their achievements since they left you. Um, there's lots of things you can do in a private network that you cannot do in a public one. But if you don't administer it yourself, if you're not in control of it as a company, then you really don't have a chance of keeping those people close to you in a, in a productive manner.
0: Yeah. I think Facebook uh, does have uh... – a better way to, to have private groups rather than yeah. LinkedIn, which um, is a different kind of paradigm. It's a totally
1: different, unit. Yeah. It's a different paradigm.
0: So how should employees approach leaving so that they can come back?
1: Well, there's lots of things you can do to leave well so that you are boomerang possible. You know, <laughs> hmm. one is don't be stupid on your way out. Right. Even if you're not feeling great about your boss or the company and you are disgruntled, don't be dumb as you leave. Because uh, you, you know, acting out as you leave is going to impact somebody else. And those people are all going to go somewhere else. And you don't want to have your brand, your, you know, people be talking about you negatively, even if they're not at the company. So, you know, I, I got a lot of stories from people who had colleagues leave in a very bad way by putting salt in the sugar shaker or disconnecting the water systems or, you know, all this kind of stuff. (laughs) <laughs> that means you're not, you're pretty much not boomerang possible if you do that kind of stuff, right? Right, yeah. One way to leave, the best way to leave is one, you tie everything up. Every project that you're working on, you tie up in a bow, you leave detailed notes about what everything is and what has to happen by certain dates. So that when you leave, your projects don't die. That's the first piece. The second piece is to say thank you for your time to the people who you've interacted with. And uh, I recommend for the people, you know, pick the people who are closest to you and afterwards send all those people a personal note on stationery. I really enjoyed working with you. I hope we keep in touch. You know, I'm looking forward to, you know, hearing about how things progress at ABC Corp or whatever, because it's that, relate. you know, how, when you've left something, it's up to you to keep the relationship going. It's not up to the company to keep the relationship going with you technically. Right. And then third, how you can be boomerang possible is once you're out in the world at a different place when the opportunity comes up where you think your former employer would be a good match either for um a person or a company or as a partner or as um, a venue or whatever that you recommend them and that you make that possible that you connect other companies with your former companies and if you're that linker the linkers are the ones who are boomerang ready fast
0: yeah. Are there specific steps that you recommend in the book uh, about creating a culture of return?
1: Yes. So, you know, tr- a company that is good to return to is hard to leave, right? You don't come back to something bad. So if, if you're creating a culture of return, you're creating a culture of stay. And um, the keys around that are making sure that your values are good and are well understood so that you are attracting the kind of people who line up with your values, who line up with what you're trying to do in the world as a company and they are motivated by those values to to participate. That's number 1. Um number 2 is um it's a you know how do you become a culture of appreciation Uh, those teams that are, uh, who feel appreciated outperform teams that do not feel appreciated by up to a factor of 30% that translates right to the bottom line. So if you're a cult in a culture that doesn't say please and thank you, start saying please and thank you. And you'll find out quickly that that pays off dividends because inefficiency happens when people are grinding on something, when they don't feel appreciated and they're grinding on it, you know, there's a lot of, he never appreciates me or I do all this work and no one's going to notice. But if you're in a place where your work is appreciated, uh, all that inefficiency that comes along with being a human being sort of goes out the door, right? And those two things alone can create an incredibly different environment without a whole lot of work.
0: Yeah, you talk a lot about uh, conflict resolution in your books. Um, Yes, I do. (laughs) Why is this important to you?
1: You know, um, we're humans, right? Humans go to work and... um, We have different upbringings and different languages and different understandings. And conflict comes all the time. And particularly between the generations, conflict can happen when you didn't even intend it. I mean, sometimes we intend conflict. I think most of the time we don't intend conflict. It just sort of happens because um, we have different understandings of words. So the faster, if you have a culture of conflict resolution that you, when things come up, you're going to address them quickly and respectfully, what happens is you get better at being together and the teams that are better at being together, you know, are higher producing, higher functioning, higher, um, higher productivity, and they get along. And, you know, again, humans like to get along. And, you know, if you think about a sports team, the best example is sort of rowers, right? Rowers have to, or scholars have to row at the same pace all the time. And they practice, just being rowing at the same time. And so they know when when they practice all the time that it's uh, it's muscle memory, right? This is why fire departments practice us. We all practice things. We don't get a lot of practice in the workplace. You know, uh, we get practice in sports we get practice in, um, you know, if, if you're a first responder, but there's not a lot of practice in the workplace about how to work through conflict. And I am a huge advocate for that because we're all, you know, humans have conflict every day that they didn't intend. And if we can find mechanisms to get rid of it and to resolve it and move on, then the productivity goes up. And as a business owner, I'm all about productivity. You know, I'm all about the bottom line and the margin. Um, no margin, no business, right? That's just the way it is.
0: Right. You've got to be around tomorrow.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: So what do you think is the difference between the way women and men think about these sorts of things? Mm-hmm. Um
1: well, I think women and men do think about these things very differently, and one of the reasons I wanted to write my book is because there are not a, there are lots of books by fabulous women about how to how to be a woman in business and how to be a woman who does multiple things a mother, a wife, a child, um, a business owner, a philanthropist, whatever. But there aren't very many books written by women about how to run a company and how to lead an organization, and so my I think where I have been able to take those things that I, I talk about in millennials and management now and the boomerang principle, they're not necessarily women oriented things, but they're definitely philosophies that women resonate highly with when I talk out about them out in the world. And the more we can have multiple voices about how to lead, so it's not all just about performance and go, go, go and, you know, what's the margin and what's the return to investors um because most of us most companies are not publicly traded the more i think um, we're going to have environments that are suited to the real workplace
0: why is it important to have books written by women uh, do you think mm-hmm. uh, about running a company
1: well you know i think they're on the gender gender bias is real and alive um particularly here in silicon valley where i am and uh women and men think differently Right, And I think the more we can have women voices be part of the business narrative, the less gender bias we'll have. And I think most gender bias is unattended, but it comes out of who you're listening to. And if you're only listening to men's voices, then maybe the women's voices don't mean as much. And the more we can have women contribute to the conversation about leadership, contribute to the conversation about the future of work, not just from a work-life balance perspective, but from a bottom line perspective, the more... That a woman's voice, I think, will be heard in the office place. And if we're going to get to the other side of women being paid less than men for the same job, I think that's part of it is having more women's voices uh, in the business workplace that aren't just about being a woman in business.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. Let's circle back to your other book um, and, and talk about how do millennials fit into this new equation about loyalty?
1: Well I think millennials are one of the big reasons we're even having this conversation about loyalty because they don't you know they're uh because they know they're not gonna stick in a job very long. And they have been you know, they know that a company the economy has told them, history has told them that a company will not just care for you just because you work hard, right? We're so out of control over when a company goes out of business or when a company merges and what department gets, you know, annealed and what a carton gets cut. We're out of control on that. And I think that the uh, millennials in general feel a great deal of responsibility and anxiety around crafting their own career so they have the multi- most options possible and they have the most fulfilling careers possible. So if, um, if that is the case and, we know, and when someone uh, starts a job, they know they're not going to stay there very long, if companies don't change their point of view on this, on what counts and who counts and who doesn't, then they're going to be left out in the cold, not because millennials or anybody else doesn't have loyalty, because they have to put themselves first. And you can be you can be loyal to yourself and loyal to the company at the same time. In fact, I think the most loyal thing you can do at a company is to leave when you're no longer motivated, right?
0: Yeah.
1: The most truly, really, when you're not motivated or if you don't see the opportunity you want, um, and you're just going to sit around and you know, and you're willing just to sit by the window, as the Japanese say, well, you know, the most loyal thing you can do is leave and find something else that motivates you that you're excited about.
0: Yeah, we don't need people just sitting by the window, that's for sure.
1: No. Well, we also don't need people um, who are sort of doing, you know, an 80% job. You know, they know enough to get by. So, and there'll be less and less tolerance for that, too. You know, non-performers in this new work environment where we're using contractors, where we are outsourcing to different countries, where um, the talent, uh, we don't have enough people who have the right degrees in certain jobs unless they come from overseas. I mean, there's so many different variables in this. Uh, Talent war is real. And if you're not a great place to be from, or if your company is not a place where great people work at, then the people who have the best personal brands, those people who are the best talent, will not come to you. So it's just shifting shifting your brain about, I don't know, 45 degrees.
0: Right. <laughs> so we're about out of, out of time, but uh, what else would you like to come back to on the boomerang principle that we haven't talked about?
1: Sure. You know, I think that, um, you know, a lot of it's common sense. A lot of it is uh, people who are negative about people who don't stay around for a long time because it doesn't suit them, the company, You know, these things are, when we hire someone, we know they're going to leave. So how can we make them the most productive person there while they're there? And what I have found in my own company and in my research is when you try to make people as most productive, which means they're as happy as they can be in the environment, they stay longer. And the longer you can have great performers stay with you, um, that is strategic business decision that saves you money and drops um, margin right to the bottom line very quickly.
0: Well, it's, it's been great uh, having you with us today, Lee, and uh, we'll have you back when you have your next book.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Don't tell my husband.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Charles, for having me again. It's what a pleasure and honor to be with you again.
0: Thanks very much. And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we'll again hear about stories of organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. We'll have uh, links in the show notes to Lee's book about the the boomerang principle. And goodbye for now.